thanks for tuning in this week to Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church plant located in the Pasadena area. It is our mission to save the lost, to equip the saved, to serve both the lost and the saved, and finally to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting from the beginning of a book and working our way through all the way till the end. It is our prayer that you would grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ through his word. Well, we've been looking in Luke chapter 19, and in chapter 19 of Luke, we see three very important things about Jesus. The first two uh, important things we saw last week. Uh, first, we saw that Jesus came as a Savior to seek and save the lost, and, and that is something as Christians that we should be doing as well. And secondly, we saw that Jesus is the master who rewards the faithfulness of his servants, so we need to be faithful with what he's given us, especially the gospel. This morning we're going to look at the third thing that we see here in Luke chapter 19, and that is the fact that Jesus is the king that entered triumphantly. These verses here in Luke 19 we're going to look at this morning is referred to commonly as the triumphal entry of Jesus, and we're going to see some very important aspects of things about Jesus that I think are going to be uh, very challenging and encouraging for us. So let's see what we can learn uh, from these verses. Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 28, it says this, When Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem, and it came to pass when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village opposite you, where as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owner of it said to them, Why are you loosing the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their clothes on the colt, and they sent, set Jesus on him. So Jesus and his disciples, we've been looking at this journey from Galilee all the way down to Jerusalem. They finally have gotten to the outskirts of Jerusalem. Bethpage and Bethany are are two towns that border Jerusalem. And and before Jesus enters into Jerusalem, he tells two of his disciples to go and do something for him. He says, you know, I want you to go to the next village and you're going to find a colt or a young donkey. And you're going to loose that young donkey and you're going to bring it here to me. And if the owner of the donkey he says, hey, what are you guys doing taking my donkey? Just say, the Lord has need of it, and he'll let you have it. And so the two disciples, they go, they just be obedient. At this point in time in the ministry that they've had with Jesus, they've stopped questioning him. They realize that when Jesus tells them to do something, it's just going to happen. I'm sure they're thinking, if we're going to go take someone else's donkey, there could be a little problem there. But they just trust that Jesus says, hey, the guy's going to let you have it. So they go, they go, and they start loosening this donkey, and the owner comes out and says, hey, what are you guys doing? Why are you taking my donkey? And they just say, the Lord has need of it, and he allows them to have it. And they bring that donkey to Jesus in order for him to ride on top of it into Jerusalem. Now, something I want you to note here as we start the the triumphal entry here is that Jesus is orchestrating the events that we see here. Notice that he's the one who's told two of his disciples, I want you to go, I want you to get this donkey because that is what I'm going to ride on. And Jesus has also orchestrated the timing. This specific day is the day that he has chosen to ride in to Jerusalem, and that specific day was April 6, A.D. 33. 
Now, there's two important things I want us to note about the how and the when of Jesus choosing to come triumphantly in Jerusalem. The first thing I want us to note is that Jesus chose to ride coming on a donkey. Now, that is quite significant because during that time, there was a lot of triumphal entries of conquering kings, especially among the Romans. And a conquering king would ride in on a war horse, and it would show that we have conquered you, and now that we are here, we are going to be your king. We're going to rule over you. And so it was this show of power, and hey, look at us, we are the conquering force. And so there was a lot of triumphal entries of kings riding in on war horses, demonstrating their conquering power of their armies, but that's not the way in which Jesus came. It's interesting because also in that day, there were those who would ride in on a donkey, and it had something very different in its meaning. You ride in on a war horse, you're demonstrating we've conquered you and we're here to rule over you, but when you ride in on a donkey at that point in time, you were coming as a man of peace. The horse was a man of war who's conquered, the donkey was a man of peace. And I think this is very significant because Jesus at this first coming was not coming to make war. He was coming to make peace, peace between mankind and God. You see, the Bible makes very clear that all of us are sinners. All of us have broken God's commands, God's standard. None of us have lived up to it. And because we have broken God's commands, the Bible says that makes us God's enemies. We have been disobedient to him. We have broken his commands. And so he says, you are my enemy because of it. But God doesn't want us to be his enemy. So he's made a way so that we could have peace. He sent Jesus Christ to come to this earth. And as he enters Jerusalem, he's demonstrating this reality that I've come to make peace between God and man. Well, how is he going to do that? Well, the thing that made us the enemy was our sin. And so Jesus is going to pay for our sin on the cross. He took your sin. He took my sin. He took the punishment of our sin upon himself so that we could have peace with God, so that we could go from being God's enemies to being God's friends and even more significantly, God's children. Jesus paid for the thing that was causing us to be an enemy of God so that we could have peace with God, so that we could have a relationship with God. So in Jesus' first coming, he came as the peaceful king. But something that I think is important for us to note is that the Bible is very clear that Jesus had a first coming and that he is going in the future to come again for a second time. But the Bible refers to his second coming as a different type of coming. You see, the first coming was the peaceful king. In the second coming, Jesus is going to come as the conquering king. He's not going to be riding on a donkey. This time he will be riding on a horse of war. In Revelation chapter 19, we see of the return of Jesus Christ. I want you to note what verses 11 through 16 say. It says this, Now I saw heaven open, behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it he uh, should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
When Jesus comes again, he's not coming as the peaceful king. He's coming as the conquering king. The first time he came to bring peace between mankind and God. Because he knows, I will come again. And when I come again, it's not to bring peace. It's to conquer my enemies. And so now we're in this place of time where Jesus says, I've done everything to bring peace. And if you choose to accept what I've done for you, you choose to accept my sacrifice for you, you can have peace with me. But if you choose to reject me, you choose to reject what I've done, you are going to stay my enemy. And when I come again the second time, I am going to come to conquer my enemies. And I think it's important to understand of Jesus coming first to bring peace because he recognized second, he's going to come to judge those who have sinned against God and have not accepted the way that God has given us to escape the punishment of our sin, which is accepting what Christ has done. So the first important thing of the how and when of Jesus' triumphal entry is he came on a donkey to demonstrate that I've come to bring peace between God and man. So Jesus made sure he entered Jerusalem on a donkey, and he made sure it was on a specific day, April 6, A.D. 33. Now, why ride on a donkey? Why is that significant? Why this day? Why is that significant? Why, as in Jesus is orchestrating this, does he want these two things to be just the way they are? Well, that brings us to the second important thing to note, and that is Jesus did this to fulfill Bible prophecy. You see, the Bible has thousands of prophecies, predictions of future things that would happen. And you know what? If you go through all these thousands, there's still some prophecies that are speaking about the future, but we have thousands that have already been fulfilled. There's not one Bible prophecy that says this is going to happen 100 years from now, 300 years from now, whatever, that has been disproved, all the things that the Bible has prophesied would take place, predicting the future events have taken place. And there's two Bible prophecies that are specifically referring to this triumphal entry. Actually, if you look through the Old Testament, there are 315 prophecies about the coming Messiah, about Jesus. Where he would be born, it tells us Bethlehem. How he would be born from a virgin. How he would live his life. How he would die. The fact that he would rise from the dead. All these things were prophesied in the Old Testament, told to us that these things would take place. But there's two things specifically about the triumphal entry that I want you to note that the Old Testament has told us, which I think is significant of why Jesus does this. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just in having salvation. And notice this, lowly and riding on a donkey. This prophecy from Zechariah was given 550 years before the triumphal entry. But he says, your king's going to come, Jerusalem, Jews. He's coming to you. And guess the way he's going to come? He's not going to come at the conquering, riding on a horse king this first time. He's going to come lowly, riding on a donkey. And that's exactly what Jesus did. But you know what? There's also a prophecy of when Jesus would come. The book of Daniel has more prophecies than any other Old Testament book. It's one of my favorite books. But there's a prophecy within Daniel, chapter 9, verses 25 and 26. It's just the portion we're going to focus on right now. It says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. 
This is one of my favorite prophecies in the Bible, and it reveals to us when specifically Jesus would triumphantly enter into Jerusalem and then soon after that give his life for the sins of the world. And it would really take a whole sermon to go into all this, so I just want to give you some highlights because I think it's a very fascinating uh, prophecy that we have. We're told here that there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now, the first thing we need to understand is the Old Testament's written in Hebrew originally, the New Testament's written in Greek originally, and this Hebrew word translated weeks literally means a period of seven. So it can be used a period of seven days, like we say a week, seven days, but also in the Hebrew language, it could be used for a period of seven years. And so here in Daniel's prophecy, this word translated weeks is referring to a seven-year period. So every time you see weeks here, it's speaking of a seven-year span of time. So Daniel gives us a little math equation. If you don't like math, you're probably not going to like the next couple minutes, but try to follow along with me. We're going to kind of calculate out what he says here. Uh, It's important to understand the start of this equation is when the command goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That's when you have to start counting this equation out. It starts here, and in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 2, this command to go and restore Jerusalem was made by King Artaxerxes, March 14th, 444 B.C. That's a very important date because it is the start of the equation. Now, what did Nehemiah do when he went there? Why did King Artaxerxes send him there? Well, he went because Jerusalem had been destroyed. The walls had been knocked down. He came to rebuild it all, and that was the purpose of him going. So from that decree on March 14th, 444 B.C., we're told there'll be seven weeks or seven seven-year periods. So let's start doing our math. Seven times seven is... 49. Okay, so we have 49 years. Now, it's interesting. Nehemiah tells us how long it took to rebuild everything there in Jerusalem, and it was exactly 49 years. So at the start of this, he says, the decree is going to be given. You're going to go to rebuild this, and it's going to be seven sevens. So 49 years is that first thing that's going to transpire, and it does. It takes 49 years to rebuild the city of Jerusalem at that time. But then Daniel goes on to say, then there's going to be 62 weeks, meaning 62 seven-year periods of time. Now, if you multiply 62 times 7, that's not as easy as 7 times 7, is is it? You get 434 years. So first you have the 49 years it took to rebuild Jerusalem. Then you have 434 years. You add those two together, you come up with 483 years. Daniel says, in 483 years, something very significant is going to happen. The Messiah is going to come. He's going to enter into Jerusalem. Now, here is where the prophecy gets uh, quite amazing. As soon as this decree is given to rebuild Jerusalem, we have to start counting. So you have March 14th. 444 B.C., King Artaxerxes gives this decree. All right, Nehemiah, go rebuild, restore Jerusalem. At that moment, we start counting. But here's something we need to understand. Prophetic years use a Jewish calendar. Daniel was Jewish. Bible was written mainly by Jewish people, which is a 360-day calendar. We use a 365-day calendar. So 360-day calendar, if you multiply 483 years times 360 days, you're going to get 173,000 880 days. If you start at March 14th, 444 BC, you count 173,880 days. You know what day you come to? April 6, AD 33. The exact day that Jesus enters into Jerusalem. 
I could go a long time and getting all the history and the background of this. I just did a highlight of it. It's an amazing prophecy, so much so that secular scholars try to disprove that Daniel was written at the time it was because they think, how in the world could he have written this and know the things that he knew? It proves the Bible was truly inspired by God. So this is a great thing that Jesus does. Not only is he coming to demonstrate that he came to bring peace riding on a donkey, he came to fulfill Old Testament prophecy. And many of those Old Testament prophecies, as you can see, are very specific, like where exactly Jesus would be born, the day exactly that he would enter into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. So here are the two important things of the how and the when. And now Jesus is going to come in. And I want us to note the response. Okay, he's riding on a donkey. He's coming into Jerusalem. How are people going to respond as he comes and declares himself for the first time as king? Throughout his ministry so far, when people wanted to declare him as king, declare him as a Messiah, he would tell them, not now, not wait, wait, you know, don't tell anybody about me, don't do this, because he recognized, I have a perfect timing that I'm working in, it is God's perfect timing, and there's a specific day that I'm going to be declared as king, and it's not yet. And he kept putting people off, putting people off, well, now it's come to the point where he says, now it's time. The specific day is ready, I'm going to enter Jerusalem, and I'm going to declare myself as the king, as the Messiah, as the savior of the world. Well, let's see how people respond to this. Verse 36 of chapter 19. And as Jesus went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. So Jesus now, he gets on this donkey, he rides into Jerusalem, and we have two different responses to him declaring himself as the king, as the Messiah, as the Savior. You have the first group who receives Jesus as their king. They desire Jesus to be their king. They want him as their Messiah and their Savior. They rejoice, we're told, and they praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they've seen, and they say this, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They're actually quoting a psalm that's speaking of the Messiah. And so they recognize, we recognize who you are. We want you to be our Messiah. We want you to be our king. But not everyone was rejoicing. Not everyone was praising. Not everyone wanted to accept Jesus as their king, accept Jesus as their savior. There was a group of people, and we've seen them throughout the gospel of Luke, the Pharisees, the religious leaders who hated Jesus, who wanted nothing to do with Jesus, who did not consider Jesus their king, their Messiah, their savior. And they hated the fact that other people did. And so they say to Jesus, shut this crowd up. Don't let them continue to say this about you. You're no king. You're no Messiah. Stop them from declaring this about you. And Jesus says, if they were to stop, even the rocks would cry out because this is a true reality of who I am. So we see two different responses to Jesus' triumphal entry. First, a response of receiving Jesus, accepting Jesus, wanting Jesus to be their king, to be their savior. And the second response does not receive Jesus, does not praise Jesus, does not believe in who Jesus is. You know, it's significant because today we have the same basic two responses as we did thousands of years ago as Jesus rode in on a donkey. You have groups of people who receive Jesus, 
Believe in who he is. Believe in what he's done. Ask for him to be their savior. And then you have the groups that say, we want nothing to do with you. We don't believe in who you are. We don't believe in what these people tell us. We want nothing to do with you. We do not want you as our king. We do not want you as our savior. You know, how do you choose to respond to who Jesus is? How you choose to respond to what Jesus has done for you is really the most significant decision that you will ever make in this life. Jesus, the Bible declares very clearly, is God, and he came to this earth for a specific purpose, to give his life for your sin, for my sin. He went to the cross to take our sin upon him, but not just to take our sin, but to take the punishment of our sin that we deserve, and he took it so that we wouldn't have to. He did it so that we could have forgiveness of our sin. He did it so that we no longer had to be God's enemy, but we could be brought into a peaceful relationship with God. And the Bible says all we need to do in order to have that relationship, in order to be forgiven of our sin, in order to go from God's enemy to God's friend, to God's child, is to believe in who Jesus is and to believe in what he's done. Believe that Jesus truly is God, that's who he is, and also to believe in what he's done, that he died on the cross for your sin, that he rose from the dead to conquer sin and death, and that he is capable of bringing forgiveness to you, capable of giving you the way to God and a relationship with him. The Bible says if you make that choice to believe in Jesus, you ask him to forgive you of your sins, he will. 1 John 1, 9 says if you confess your sin, God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all the unrighteousness that comes in your life because of it. It's a promise. He says, anyone who does that, anyone who asks for forgiveness, I will not reject, I will not turn away, I will forgive anyone, no matter what you've done, no matter what sin you've committed. God says, you come to me, you believe in me, you ask for forgiveness from me, and I will give it to you. The question we have to ask ourselves is, how have you responded to who Jesus is? How have you responded to what Jesus has done for you? Are you like the portion of the crowd that received him, that desired him, that asked for him to be their king and their savior? Or are you like the portion of the crowd that has been rejecting him and wants nothing to do with him? Well, we have these two responses, and now we see a response of Jesus, a very significant response of Jesus, because there's only two times in all of the scriptures that we see Jesus responding like this. And I want you to note how he responds to his being rejected, to those who did not accept him as king, to those who did not accept him for who he was, the Messiah, and for what he was about to do, die for the sins of the world. Notice what happens in verses 41 through 44. Now, as Jesus drew near... He saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the thing that makes for your peace, speaking of himself. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation as Jesus came to this earth. There's only two times in scripture where it says Jesus weeps. When his good friend Lazarus dies and is placed into a tomb and Jesus comes and the the friends and the uh, sisters of Lazarus are there, we're told that Jesus wept at that point in time. And here again, we have Jesus 
weeping. But you know what? There's actually two different Greek words. The first Greek word, as Jesus weeps with Lazarus, is more of just an internal grieving with tears streaming down his face. But this one is much more extreme. It means to wail and lament. It's to describe great sadness. This is how Jesus responds to those who have rejected him. It causes such great sadness that he wails and laments those who he came to die for who have rejected who he is and what he's done. And I think this shows us the great heart of God when it comes to people and when it comes to judgment. God loves everyone in the world and he does not want to have to judge them. And it brings great grief and sadness to him when we reject him because Ultimately, it forces God to judge us. The Bible tells us that God desires that none should perish, but that all should come to everlasting life. That God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You see, God doesn't want to have to punish you for your sins. He doesn't want to have to judge you for what you've done. But the reality is God is holy. You know, people always want to say, well, God's a God of love. God's a God of love. God's a God of love. Well, that's true, but that's not all he is. He's also a holy God. And because he is holy, he cannot allow sin into his presence. Our sin separates us from a holy God. And he's also not just holy. He's a just judge. Because he's a just judge, you can't just show up in in heaven and say, you know what, God? I know I did all these wrong things, but you can just let me in, right? You're a God of love. And he says, yes, I am a God of love, but I also am holy, and your sin separates you from me, and I'm a God of justice, and so I must punish the sin that you have committed. God, knowing his holiness, knowing his justice, says, you know what, I'm going to make a way for you sinful people to have a relationship with me once again. And the way God did that was by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sin, so that God could say, you know what, your sin's been dealt with, so my holiness is able to allow you to come into my presence, and your sin has been punished, so my justice now is allow you to able to come into my presence. So he is loving. He's loving enough that he sent his son Christ to die for our sins so that we could have forgiveness of our sin. But you know what? God doesn't force you to receive him. Just like he didn't force those in the triumphal entry who were rejecting him to receive him. He wailed. He lamented. He was saddened by the rejection. But he did not say, no, you will receive me. I will force you to receive me. He leaves that choice up to us. We can choose to reject him. We can choose to reject who he is. We can choose to reject what he's done. But understand this, a rejection of Jesus will ultimately cause you to stand before him, not as your heavenly father who you have this intimate relationship with, but as your just judge who has to judge your sin. And the Bible says when we stand before Jesus after we die and we have not accepted him, he will have to judge us and that judgment is hell. But you know what? Jesus came to bring us peace with God. He came to bring us a relationship with God. And all we have to do is accept who he is, God, what he's done, that he died on the cross for our sin and rose from the dead. You know, Jesus said right before, towards the end of his ministry, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's only one way to be forgiven of your sins, one way to have a relationship with God, one way to heaven, and that is through accepting who Jesus is and what he's done for you. You're not going to be good enough. Religion doesn't do it. It's a relationship with Jesus that is the only way to have that forgiveness. Recently, we've had several people 
make this decision to accept Jesus as their Savior, to believe who He is, God, to believe in what He's done, that He died on the cross for their specific sins, and they're going to come in a few minutes and they're going to get baptized as a symbol of that relationship and that commitment to Jesus Christ. But before we start that process of the service, I just want to take a moment to pray, to pray for those people and what the Lord's going to do. And so let's just come before the Lord in prayer. Father, we are so grateful for what you've done for us, that you showed your love so powerfully that you sent your son to die on the cross for our sins. And we're so thankful for those who are going to be baptized this morning, Lord, those who came to that truth, who accepted that truth of who you are and what you've done. And that they want to declare to everybody here this morning that they believe in you. That they want to live their lives for you. Lord, we just pray for them. We ask that you would just bless them this morning. That this would be a wonderful experience. But Lord, this would just be the start of a great, great relationship that continues with you for the rest of their lives. And as we're here this morning and and people's eyes are closed and their heads are bowed. If you were here... And you've come, maybe you were invited by someone who's getting baptized this morning. You've been listening to what's been taught. And you have never asked Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins. You've never believed in who he is. You've never believed in what he's done, that he died on the cross for your sin, that you want a relationship with God, that you want forgiveness of your sin. You can do that this morning. I want to pray for you. If that's you, if you want to make a decision this morning to believe in Jesus Christ, to receive forgiveness of your sin, I'm just going to ask as people's eyes are closed, heads are bowed, just raise your hand. God bless you. Anyone else? You, you want to receive Jesus Christ this morning. You want to receive that forgiveness of your sin. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. If you haven't done that, don't leave here thinking, you know what, i got plenty of time. We don't know how much time we have left. Get right with God now. Anyone else who wants to come and accept Jesus today? All right, well, I'm just going to ask for you who raised your hand just to repeat a simple prayer. It's a prayer, hopefully, that you mean from your heart. God, I believe I'm a sinner. And I believe that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die for my sin. I believe that he rose from the dead to conquer sin and death. And I ask that you would forgive me of my sin. That you would come into my life and change me. I make you my master, my king, and my savior. In Jesus' name, amen.